0: Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. In chapter 2 of his Gospel, Luke writes, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Suddenly a great company the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about.
1: As we light the fourth Advent candle, let us remember to be ready to welcome and receive the Lord.
0: The fourth week in Advent is the week of love. We light the angel's candle, which is the candle of the final coming. The fourth candle reminds us of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests.
1: So this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the fourth message in this series, The Light of the World, Three weeks ago, James started started us off by looking at the darkness of our world that Jesus came to bring light into. Then these past couple of weeks, we have looked at two Old Testament passages that, that tell us about this light. We looked at the, the announcement in Isaiah chapter 9 that, that told us about um, what this light would look like for us and to us, and then last week we looked at Numbers 24 and the prof- prophecy of the star that was the um, the glory of God re-entering our 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 world, where um, the light is Emmanuel, God with us. This morning I want us to look at the genealogy, and this is the 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 story of. Of the light being born. And so to, to get us started, I would like for us to look at the first few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. This, these are the first words that, that really launch the story of Jesus. If you'd like to follow along as I read, it's on page 1877 in your pew Bible. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. A couple of observations. One, that's a lot of names. Two, I know this is church, and I know you're supposed to be polite, but how many of you found your mind wandering just a little bit as all those names were being written? Okay. Okay. So here's the thing. Matthew's writing this book, right? Now, I was an English major in college, and in the the writing classes that I had, we were always taught that you want to grab your reader right at the beginning of your book, right at the beginning of your piece. You want to write something that's going to just draw them right in. Did that draw you in? I mean, a lot of people start reading the New Testament, and they go, if that's the, what this is about, I'm not going to read anymore. Well, that's our cultural mindset, but that was not the mindset of ancient Israel. See, they didn't have electricity, and so in the evenings, they didn't turn on the TV or go to the movie or stream Netflix or pull out their iPad what they did was they sat around a campfire and told stories. And one of their, the, the chief ways they told stories was through genealogies. Because genealogies connected you to a people. If you wanted to know who I am, I would tell you about my people. Because the genealogy gave, gave me identity. It gave me dignity. This is the line of the people I come from. And, so, and because these folks knew the scriptures, when they hear names, they're, they immediately are connected to the stories that go along with those names. And they know the stories. In fact, scholars tell us that there are still nomadic tribes in the Middle East today who can sit down and they can give you the names of their ancestors back centuries. So it wouldn't be uncommon for them to sit around the campfire and say, well, let me tell you about my family and just go on for hours. And genealogies were also important because they established... um, Legal, uh, legal rights, and in fact, if you if you wanted to be a priest in Israel, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to Aaron, back to the tribe of Levi. So, so genealogies are, are very important, and so it's not surprising at all that Matthew would begin his story of Jesus with this genealogy because it it let people see the importance of of how this Messiah, this anointed one, could be traced back and and who was in his line. And that's very important. Now, what is surprising is who Matthew actually includes in the list. Matthew starts out and and just uh, question... Who do you think would be included in genealogical lists? Who do you think would be important? The fathers or the mothers? Fathers. Because women had no legal rights in those days. So it would be very unusual to see mothers included, women at all. So Matthew starts his gospel. and He says, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, got that. That makes sense. That's expected. Then he says in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He sticks this woman's name in there. A woman's name was not supposed to be there. And it's not just any woman. How many of you know the story of Tamar? Okay, if you don't, you can read it in Genesis 38. But let me give you the, the synopsis. So Judah wants to marry off his oldest son, Ur. He goes to Canaan and he finds this woman, Tamar, who he brings back to be wed to his son. But what we read in Genesis 38 is that Ur was immensely wicked and so he was was killed. So now, Judah is responsible, he's obligated to take care of Tamar. That's his covenant promise to her in bringing her out of her land to his land to unite him with his son. But since his son has died, now it's Judah's responsibility. But Judah doesn't want to take the responsibility, so he sends her off. Judah is a covenant breaker with Tamar. Well, Tamar's a woman. She doesn't have any way to take care of herself. And so she decides that she's going to disguise herself as a a prostitute and, and position herself on the road where she knows that Judah will pass by. And sure enough, he does. It's dark. She's disguised. He sleeps with her, but he's not able to pay her. And so what he does is he gives her his staff and his seal it's kind of a promissory note saying, hey, next time I'm by, I will pay you and you can give me my staff and my seal back. Okay? Well, a few months go by and word gets back to Judah that his widowed daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he gets all self-righteous on her. And he he says, well, let's call her into the public square and let's have her executed in in front of everybody. And so they bring Tamar out and she says, "Okay, well you can kill me, but before you do, you just need to know that the the father of the child I'm carrying is the one who had this staff and this seal." Busted, right? So Judah recognizes what he's done and he repents. So I grew up in a church where they told Old Testament stories all the time. And they would do it on flannel graphs. You remember flannel graphs where you rub the piece of paper and it sticks? They never told this story. And if you think you have a dysfunctional family, check this one out, right? Right? So Tamar goes on to give birth to twins, two boys. One of them reaches his hand out of the womb first and the midwife ties a scarlet cord around that hand because it was very important to mark who the firstborn was because it was through the firstborn that the the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be passed down and it was from that line that Messiah would come. And so it's very important to identify the firstborn. So that scarlet cord is kind of a reminder. This is who the Messiah is going to come from. So Matthew puts Tamar, this woman, in Jesus' story. Daughter-in-law, dressed up like a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law. One of their children, their sons, becomes one of Messiah's ancestors. Matthew writes this in his book. Now, I imagine Matthew writing his book and, and Mrs. Matthew looking over his shoulder and saying, you know, Matt, honey, I don't want to tell you what to write. Um, but what are you thinking? You're putting women in the list? And if you're going to put a woman in the list, why would you put Tamar? I mean, you got Sarah, you got... Rachel, Rebecca, Leah. you got all these women of of faith that you could put in there. Why put Tamar? I mean, her story is a disaster. Don't put her in there. I don't even know why God put that story in Genesis. Well, Matthew just ignores her. Not because he's a typical male, um, but because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, no, I think I'll leave Tamar in. And then he goes on, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Here's another woman, Rahab. uh, Another Gentile, another Canaanite. And she lives in the city of Jericho, and she doesn't just dress up as a prostitute. She is a prostitute. That's what she does for a living. And in Joshua chapter 2, we we read the story and we find out that she lives in the wall of Jericho. She's, because of what she does, she's one of those people who are kind of on the margin. They're not inside, they're not outside, they're just there. Well, Joshua sends these spies to spy out Jericho, and these spies end up hiding out in Rahab's home. And for whatever reason, her heart was open to the God of Israel, and so she risked her life to protect these Israelite spies. So these guys tell her, because of your kindness to us, um... We're going to spare you and your family. But here's what you need to do. You need to take a scarlet cord and hang it out your window. Out of the window that you let us out of. And when we come back to take the city, we will see that scarlet cord. And that scarlet cord will, will be a sign of salvation. And we will save you and your family who are in your home. See, that scarlet cord runs Through the whole Old Testament. It's a sign of salvation. For Matthew readers, one more time, this woman, a Gentile. A scandal. Next line down, Matthew keeps going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, another woman. And some of you remember her story. It's told in the book of Ruth. See, the Bible's not hard at all. The story is there's a, there was a woman named Naomi, and she, had, she and her husband lived in Bethlehem. There was a famine. They had two boys. They, they moved to uh, the land of Moab. And while they were there, the two boys got married. But while they're in Moab, the two boys die. And so does Naomi's a husband. He died. And so now she's got these two widowed daughters-in-law and she tells them, I'm going back to my land, but you need to stay in yours and you need to get a husband from amongst your people. One of her daughters-in-law was named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And Orpah stayed um, in Moab But the other daughter-in-law went with Naomi, and her name was Ruth. And she, she had these great words that many of us are familiar with. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. What we need to fully appreciate about Ruth is that Ruth is not just a Gentile. She is a Moabite. And according to Genesis chapter 19, the Moabites were the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. It's a horrible story. But the Moabites were considered by the Israelites to be so unclean that the law said in Deuteronomy 23 that no Moabite or any of the descendants could be part of the Israelite community. Well, here we have Ruth, a Moabite. And Matthew says, I'm putting her in the story. Because it's important for people to know that there's Moabite blood in the ancestry of Messiah. So you've got Tamar, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, and Matthew's not done yet. Look at the middle of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Anybody remember the name of Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. Why didn't Matthew just call her Bathsheba? Because Matthew wants us to make sure we understand what he's saying about David. See, he could have used a lot of phrases to describe David. A man after God's own heart, a guy who wrote most of the Psalms, um, warrior who slew Goliath, but he doesn't. Essentially what he says is, David, the man who committed adultery with a, man, with a man's wife whom he had killed. Matthew puts that. In the genealogy. So his story starts out. The story of Jesus starts out with the genealogy. Great idea, Matthew. Put it in there. That will help us see the identity and all that stuff. But then he starts putting these names in. Women. Scandal. um, Pagans. Matthew, what are you thinking? Don't you know what a genealogy is supposed to do? It's supposed to give us identity and dignity and these are not people we want to associate with. What are you thinking, Matthew? I'll tell you what Matthew is thinking. Matthew is saying this is not just a record of Jesus' ancestors. It's a picture of the people that Jesus Christ is going to identify with And love and let into his kingdom. And they're not going to look like what everybody's been expecting them to look like. Things are going to get a little scandalous now and then. Things are going to get messy now and then. Things are not always going to be respectable. But the beautiful thing about this is that with Jesus coming, anybody who wants to be in his family can be in his family. Because Jesus wants everybody. He wants everybody in his family. Hittites and Moabites and Canaanites and Jerichoites and Brooklynites and Manhattanites. Um, He wants us all. He just wants us to come. Martin Luther said, It is as though God intended for people to hear this genealogy and say to themselves, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. See, he even puts them in his family tree. Isn't that great? So if anybody is here this morning and you're tempted to think, I've messed up too much. God can't use me because of all that I've done. God can't, Use me because of the family that I come from. I think Jesus would say to you this morning, Are you kidding me? Have you seen my family? You have no idea what I can do if you just open your heart up to me. If you're thinking my sin is too dark, Jesus is saying, not for me. I'm the light of the world, and I can shine into any darkness. Jesus embodied this so deeply that he came to be called the friend of sinners. That's what Matthew calls him. And sometimes we think about that phrase as a compliment, friend of sinners. There was a song in the church that I grew up in. Some of you may have sung it. Um, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Um. That was not a song that they were singing in the first century. That was not a compliment. It was an accusation. And so what Matthew is is trying to tip us off to. Is that this Messiah. This Rabbi. Will get in a lot of trouble over these friendships. Friends that scarlet cord. That runs all through the Old Testament. Ultimately is pointing to the scarlet. Death of Jesus. Where his. Head was pierced by a crown of thorns. And his hands and his feet were pierced by. By spikes. And his side was pierced by a sword. And and scarlet flowed from every one of those wounds. And. By his stripes we are healed. By his blood. Our sin is forgiven. You see that scarlet cord that runs through the Old Testament pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ where we have forgiveness of sin and, and, and freedom for life where Jesus says if you want to be in my family come on in no matter who you are you see Jesus came to die for all of those broken and messed up people because he says those are my people <laughs> they are my people. People read this genealogy of Jesus and when they start following him, they begin to have a heart like his, a heart for people who are far from God. They just want everybody to come in. Some of you, some of you know the name Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is a sociologist and an author and a, a professor and a pastor. And he wrote a book a number of years ago called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And in that book, he tells this story about um, flying to do a conference in, in Honolulu. And and he lived in Philadelphia. And so he's traveling across all of these time zones. He gets to Honolulu and and because of the time difference, he wakes up in the middle of the, the night um, hungry, and so he goes out looking for a place to eat, and he finds this 24-hour diner, and it's 3.30 in the morning, and he's sitting there having his breakfast or whatever he's eating, and, and in walk eight or nine loud and boisterous prostitutes. And the, the diner was a small place. And so they all sat kind of around him. And there he said they were talking loudly and crudely. And, and he was getting pretty uncomfortable. And he was trying to figure out a way to leave. And then this, this woman who was sitting right next to him said, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And, and the woman right across from her said, well, what do you want me to do about it? You want you expect me to throw you a party? You want me to bake you a cake? She said, No, I just, I don't know. I just thought I'd tell you it's my birthday. I've never had a party in all my life, and I don't expect one tomorrow. I just thought I'd tell you. So in that moment, Campo, Campolo had an idea. So he waited for these ladies to, to leave. And he. Went to the guy behind the counter and he said, um, do these women come in every night? And The guy's name was Harry and he said, yeah, every night, 3.30 on the dot. He said, how about that woman that was sitting next to me? Yeah, that's Agnes. She's here every, every night, 3.30, every morning, 3.30. So he said, I've got an idea. How about tomorrow we throw Agnes a birthday party? And Harry thought it was a great idea. And Harry said, I'll even volunteer to bake the cake. And so the next day, Campolo shows up at about 2.30 in the morning, and he's got decorations, and he decks out the diner, and he's got a big sign that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And Harry has baked this, this cake, and he's got 39 candles in it. And evidently, a woman who worked in the diner had also gotten the word out Because at about 3.15, the diner was packed. And Campolo writes, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) So he's in this diner. And at 3.30, on the dot, Agnes walks in. And everybody in there says, happy birthday, Agnes. And she's just overwhelmed. And then they sing, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. And then Harry walks out with this candle, or this cake, with all the candles. And Campolo says that she was misting up during the song. But when the cake came out, she just burst into tears. She was just overwhelmed. So he writes this. Um, he says that... Um, after the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it. She just openly cried. And after a few minutes, she was so overwhelmed she asked for permission to take, take the cake home. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked slowly toward the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems a little strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then, it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and, with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words come, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. He paused a moment, then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that would throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? That's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got the one we got. I don't know where we got so prim and proper along the way, but anybody who reads the New Testament will discover a Jesus who loved to hang out with, with and be friends with all the left out people. He was a friend of sinners. And when you read his genealogy, you see prostitutes and you see kings and you see everything in between. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be a part of my family, no matter where you are on the spectrum, you're welcome. Come on in. Ann Voskamp wrote a book called The Greatest Gift. In it, she writes this. The message of Christmas... Is that this world's a mess and we can never save ourselves from ourselves and we need a Messiah. The light never comes how you expect it. It comes as the unlikely and unexpected. Straight into Bethlehem, unlikely. And the feed trough, hopeless. And Christmas whispers, there is always hope. Doesn't matter how dark the dark is, a light can still dawn. It doesn't matter if the world whispers, there's not a hint that help will come from somewhere else telling us that nothing will ever improve or get better or change. But God favors the darkest places so you can see His light the brightest. And once the light of Christ shatters your dark, shadows forever flee your shadowlands. There's no going back and living in the dark. You live in the impenetrable, safe light of life. And Christmas never ends for you. That's why Matthew wrote what he wrote. That's why he put those names in the genealogy. That's why Christmas is good news. Because the kingdom of God is for anybody, even for Agnes. There's no mess too big, no darkness too dark. The light of the world wants to shine on everyone. And when you allow it to shine on you, it will shatter your dark and it will change your life forever. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that the darkness in my life is not too dark for you to shine into and and to shatter. I'm so grateful, Lord, that that scarlet cord that runs throughout the Old Testament ultimately brings us to the cross. and And that at the cross we see what you did so that we might have life. That your light could shine into us. And so Lord, in this season, as we celebrate your birth, it is also um, appropriate that we celebrate your death. Because you came to die. That we who would put our trust in you might be grafted into your family and live the life of light. Lord, I pray for the man or woman who's here this morning who has never really understood what you did for them. Never stepped into that relationship. Maybe there's someone here this morning, Lord, who who just thought that their life has been so messed up that they got too much baggage going on. It's too dark. Lord, I pray that that the message of Matthew this morning would let them know that there is no too dark for you. And that you came just, you came for people like us who are broken and damaged to mend us. So I pray that that person here this morning who has not had... Um, had relationship with you, might enter that today just by saying, Lord Jesus, I believe you came, and I believe you died for me. And I accept. Accept your grace. I accept your forgiveness. I want your friendship, your leadership. I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. And Lord, I pray that for those of us that you have already shined your light into, I pray that we would be reflectors of that light. That we would read this story and we would recognize that there is no um, closed club for Christians. But we are to be people who go out and reflect your life that we are to be people who give birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. May that be our hallmark because it shows the world your love. Lord, remind us this Christmas of the light that you came to shine to shatter our dark. In Jesus' name. Amen.